Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Let's read Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then take my joy, uh, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, hello. It's lovely to be with you. Please keep a copy of that Bible passage open there. You have my blessing to grab your phone out and Google it. I trust you won't look at Facebook. I can't say that of the students that I serve up at Griffith Uni. They're always on Facebook, but anyway. Uh, It's a great privilege uh, to get the late call up to replace uh, Mikey, who's in ISO. I'm not Mikey, if you haven't worked that out already, uh, because it is the most wonderful of days, isn't it? Resurrection Sunday, the day we celebrate celebrate Jesus' victory, his victory over sin and death uh, of Easter eggs, um, celebrating new life. I think the sugar will kick in for my kids in about 27 minutes. So I've got to be quick to get down before that. And uh, eternal life in Jesus, that's what we're celebrating today. Um, And uh, we celebrate on Good Friday too. I keep wanting to say we commemorate Good Friday uh, because it's a solemn day, isn't it? Acknowledging the purposeful death of God. Jesus dying on our behalf. Um, it is, but we do celebrate that as well because of the purpose for it. But whatever uh, solemnity uh, sort of extends from Good Friday on, uh, it's meant to burst forth in glorious light on Resurrection Sunday. Now, here's the problem with me filling in for Mikey, is I said I can fill in if I can preach the passage I just covered with Griffith Christian students last week. And uh, just have a look with me there. You're in Philippians chapter 2. Would you call that more a Good Friday or an Easter Sunday passage? There's a lot more about Jesus' death. It's almost more about Christmas in some ways, the uh, taking on human form. Um, anyway, that's what we're going to get to uh, in a moment. We are, Just because we're jumping in, we are in this, uh, what we just had read for us was from Paul, the apostle, writing to the church, the Christian church in Philippi. 
And he wrote this about 62 AD, or about 30 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, so you're sort of talking, I think it's about Bill Clinton starting to run for president if you went 30 years ago. So it's really recent history at the time he's writing. And uh, Paul had planted this church uh, in Philippi. He was kind of the, the Mikey Ty of Philippi. And um, now Paul too is stuck in ISO. Um, prison for him. Um, I don't want to start any rumours about Mikey. Um, but anyway, that's the situation. And Paul references here what is most likely, uh, in verses 6 to 11, an early Christian hymn or creed. And uh, it's the story of the pre-existence, incarnation, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And if you're someone that shows up to church just at Christmas and Easter every year, it's wonderful that you're here. And it's a great week to come, like every week, but especially because we get an overview of the whole Christian message here. I told my students up at Griffith that if you just like to read the abstract of a journal article and pretend you read the whole thing, uh, this is kind of the Bible passage that does that. <laughs> it starts with Jesus' pre-existence through his birth, death, resurrection and ascension. It gives you the whole overview. And uh, you've got the executive summary here. But I want you to note um, the purpose for which Paul is writing this summary. And that is, um, verse 5, to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, to think like Jesus. And so this passage, although we'll, we'll get to the stuff about Jesus' birth, death, resurrection... Um, it's really about having a mind like Christ. Paul is using this as an example to make a different point, uh, not just about the facts of Jesus' life, but um, I guess the, the ends which result from it. So uh, this is not just a Good Friday or Resurrection Sunday part of the Bible. It's even better. Paul wraps up the whole story and says this is what you need to take away from it. Uh, this is kind of an Easter Monday Bible passage. He's saying after it's all said and done... What do we do with it? It's the so what. And so today I'm not going to outline in detail the historical facts of the resurrection of Jesus, although it is a historical fact and you can look into that uh, elsewhere. And I'm not going to outline all the ways that uh, the resurrection represents um, victory, Jesus' victory over sin, over death, the victory of hope, really. Uh, instead, I'm going to tell you what to do with those things. And here's Paul's answer, be humble. So we'll see in verses 1 to 4, a people marked by humility. We'll see in verses 6 to 8, who follow the God of humility. And we'll see in verse 9 11, who must humble themselves before Jesus. A people marked by humility, following the God of humility, who humble themselves before Jesus. And what we'll see is the thing we've been celebrating this weekend, that at the centre of human history is the greatest act of humility that has ever or could ever or will ever occur. At the centre of all of human history, of all of history, is the greatest act of humility that has ever or could ever or will ever occur. And that humility is not just an optional extra for those who follow the God of humility, but is essential for a joyful life. What Paul is saying here is as you think about what Jesus has done for you, you'll see not just the benefits of that, but the best way to live in this world 
is by serving sacrificially like him. God says humility is to be cherished in our interactions with one another. But more than that, without humility before God, you are in grave danger. Because if ever someone had a right to insist on their way, it is God himself, isn't it? Uh, God could uh, does not have to be humble because he is worthy of praise. When someone is truly the greatest, we expect a bit of ego, don't we? Whether it's Michael Jordan in basketball, he's the greatest. Don't worry about LeBron. It was Jordan, trust me. You expect a bit of ego. Kanye, pre-2017, the greatest. Um, We expect a bit of ego. But God, who deserves ego, shows us what humility is like. Which is difficult for us to hear these days because we do not celebrate humility in our world. We're kind of a world that says, I'm the best at humility. We humble brag on Facebook. The I in iPhone was meant to stand for internet. It's just come to stand for the I of self. Selfies, me, communities of people that just agree with me. But God says, no, we are called to humility because that is what the God of the universe is like. Now, hear these words from John chapter 13. I don't know if you, how long since you've read through one of the Gospels. We've got an extra long, our longest weekend we get uh, this weekend. It's a great time to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke or John and just walk through that story of Jesus. And the second half of all the Gospels is the story of really his uh, crucifixion and resurrection. But in one of those uh, Gospels, the Gospel of John, we see in John chapter 13 as Jesus is heading to the cross, he shows us. Uh, this humility. Uh, This is from John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. (laughs) No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Down to verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things... You will be blessed if you do them. Here we have this little picture from the story. I think feet are disgusting. I'm glad that you're all wearing clothes and shoes. If you're not, you probably should have. No, don't feel guilty there. But they walked around in dirt and dust. It was the thing of the slaves to wash feet. And yet, here we have Jesus, the God of the universe, setting the example of washing the feet of the slave. 
He says, yes, you rightly call me teacher and Lord, for that's what I am. But he washes their feet. Not only that, it's a metaphor of the spiritual washing of our hearts that Jesus does for us. He sets the model of humble service that we are meant to follow. To serve other, yet uh, as he reminds Peter with his pride there, who refuses initially to let Jesus wash his feet. We also see that to serve others humbly, we must first be humbly served by Jesus. To serve others humbly, we must first be humbly served by Jesus. So Paul begins here in Philippians, and again, please be following along. Make sure that what I'm saying is from God's word. We've seen Philippians, a people marked by humility, starting at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. It's a bit complex to follow there. There's four ifs before you get to the main in, in verse one, before you get to the main clause of verse two. There's a, if there's any encouragement in union with Christ, any comfort from his love. Now, those four things there he mentions in verse one are not hypothetical ifs. They are all descriptors of the Christian experience. To be Christian is to be encouraged because you are united with Christ. You have got the victory of uh, his death and resurrection. And of course, being loved by God gives you great comfort, doesn't it? Even if no one else loves you. <laughs> the God of the universe loves you and so on and so forth. So he's saying, as those who have experienced God's love, and Christianity is not just a thing of the head, it is something you experience, God towards you. If they have experienced those things, which they have, what are they to do? Paul says, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. He's saying, if you've experienced those things that you have, then think this way. Um, the unity that they have of a sharing in God loves gives them a common way of looking at the world. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians would be automatons who are dressed in grey jumpsuits and chant the same things together, but they have all experienced God's love together, which gives them a shared way of looking at the world. It's the way that Paul himself looked at the world, which is why it brings him joy as these Christians think likewise. Paul who says in 1 Corinthians 10.33, I don't seek my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. He was always thinking of others to the point of being imprisoned now. This people, we read verse 3 and 4, marked by humility, will do some things and not do other things as a result. They won't be selfish or proud. There's no humble brags here. They won't look to their own interests. Rather, they will value others above themselves, looking to the interests of others. Life as a follower of Jesus is about humility, not being selfish, but selfless. 
I don't know, as you look at verse 3 and 4, how you're going with those things, if you're a follower of Jesus. Uh, I think I really struggle with thinking of others' interests before my own. Um, I've got four kids, one wife. I look after seven missionary staff and apprentices at Griffith Uni. I've got so many demands on my time. And when someone asks me to do something new, like preaching short notice at church on a Sunday, I just go, ugh, another thing, another thing. Uh, All my productivity books would say, say no. Whatever you do, say no. Protect your yes by saying no. But uh, love is very inefficient, as someone reminded me recently. Um, and I said a yes, but it was a begrudging yes. I'm not saying how great am I for saying yes. It was sort of a begrudging yes. I feel oh, I'm free. I could do it. Mikey's you know, I say, okay, I will. Um, but that's what I've got to train myself out of, my selfish instincts. And they're strong. Jesus' followers are called to humility. He says to them in Mark 10, Jesus says to his followers, as they have this argument over who's going to sit at his right hand or left when he comes into his kingdom, Jesus says, well, tyrants and lords in the secular space, they lord it over those. But he says, not so with you, Mark 10, 43. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This call of humility is so hard for us to hear today. We just get told, be yourself, promote yourself, as social media teaches us to. Love yourself. It's all anti-humility because it's all about self. Jesus says, think of yourself less. There is a legitimate fear here that as we serve others, that they will abuse the power we give them. This is not an excuse to accept abuse. But God calls his people to serve. And it creates a community of people looking out for the interests of others. It will be costly to be humble like this, painful at times. But a community of people who love and serve. And if you come and join the Providence community here, you will see this in action. It creates a virtuous cycle of of unity. Um, If you're not a Christian here today, you might not know this term or if you're new to Christianity. But Christians that have been around for a while talk about this uh, joke about this thing called the Christian biscuit. Has anyone ever heard of the Christian biscuit? Okay. It's the last biscuit in the Tim Tam pack, the last biscuit in the pack. And when there's a bunch of Christians together, there's always one biscuit left. Why is there one biscuit left? It's because no one wants to be the first to take it. Someone else might want this biscuit more than I do, have a greater need than I. So we all stare at this beautiful, sweet treat, not wanting to jump in front of others. Now, it's a bit silly, isn't it? This, you know, someone's got to eat it. We don't want the food to go to waste. But there's something really beautiful about a community that acts like that, isn't it? That acts in this way of humility, putting others' needs above their own, not acting out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-three eleven, "The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles themselves will be exalted." In our world, ego lifts you up, 
But in God's kingdom, it pulls you down. And there is no greater example of humility than Jesus. And so we see in verses 5 to 8, this community of people living in humility are following the God of humility. So look with me at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see here that humility is what God is like himself. The Christian mind reflects the mind of Christ, the motivation and objectives he had, and he gives us the paradigm, the example to follow, of humble service. Jesus is God. We see that in verse 6. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. It's talking here of his pre-existence. This is a pre-Christmas bit. Um where Jesus was and is fully God, equal with the Father and Spirit. And we see that, don't we, as we read through the Gospels? He acted with the authority of God, filled the expectations that the Old Testament prophets formed of what God himself would be like when he showed up. The biographies of Jesus are filled with people asking the question, who is this man? And the answer is eventually clear. It is God himself. Being in the form or very nature God, depending on your translation, just means having his very existence. The very godness of God is in him. And you cannot get a higher position than being God himself. And what has Jesus done with this power? He's not grasped it or held on to it for his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Jesus, God in eternity, takes on human flesh. This doesn't make him part God, part man. He doesn't stop being God, as some people believe. He is truly God and truly man. The idea of him making himself nothing is not emptying himself of his godness, but of his glory and privilege and honour, where he becomes human. Jesus let his nappy be changed. The God of the universe allowed himself to become hungry, to be burped by his mother. Okay, we're not in Christmas, but you know that song, Away in a Manger, The Little Lord Jesus No Crying He Makes? What a stupid song. (laughs) Of course Jesus cried. His humanity was a full humanity. When he was hungry, he had to let his mum know. So he cried. God eternal steps into our shoes. It's the great bungee jump of history where the writer steps into the book. Jesus descends, but he doesn't just descend to humanity, but he descends further. Okay, we're getting to Easter now. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Well, that's lower, but it gets lower still, even death on a cross. That's almost unfathomable that the way that the Creator would die 
is by crucifixion because the cross was degrading, a shameful death, a public humiliation. You think we invented cancel culture? This was actual death, not just social death. And not only was there the shame, but death on a cross was a curse. In Deuteronomy 21, we read that, 22 to 23. It's referred to in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us. He purchased us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, that great substitution of Good Friday, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Our Easter celebrations are about what Christ has done for us, taking God's penalty for us, substituting in our place, which makes us one with God forever. But note his obedience there, becoming obedient to the point of death. A couple of times it refers to he humbles himself. Christ willingly does this. This is the good of Good Friday, where the curse that was meant to be ours is poured onto Jesus, and through that we see the mind of Christ, that he is the God who humbly serves us. That is what God does with his power. Power is getting a bad rap these days, isn't it? Power imbalances, they're to be destroyed. Power structures are to be knocked down. Power imbalances are unavoidable. Instead, it's what you do with that power. And Jesus says those who have power, whatever power they have, are to use it to serve and humbly love others. God didn't insist on himself and his way. He's not into self-fulfillment, but of giving of his very self to serve others. And so this passage concludes with where this humility of Jesus ends, which is us needing to humble ourselves before Jesus. Look with me there at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Note the therefore in verse 9. It is because of Jesus' obedience that the Father raises him to life again. The one who lays down his life has it raised up again. Jesus served in this way not just to be the punching bag of humanity, but because it had a purpose. We read elsewhere that it's for the joy set before him that he could endure the cross. It's the cross for Jesus and then the crown. It's not just being a punching bag, it's the cross and then the crown. For though he was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, Christ is not still dead. He is not still on the cross as my lovely old grandmother used to have this little knick-knack on the table beside the bed with Jesus still on the cross, as so many Roman Catholic churches still portray Jesus. No, Christ is now risen and reigning and ruling over all. 
For the point of Jesus rising to life on Resurrection Sunday was not, ta-da, this is a great party trick. Yes, he defeated death. Yes, it's a vindication for his sinless sacrifice. But the point is, God has raised him to life, not just to a physical body again, but as ruler over all creation. That's why there's hardly any Easter Sunday in this passage. (laughs) The rising to Jesus to life again was not the end. The purpose was for him to be risen as the ruler of all creation. For his earthly ministry only continues not very long before he's ascended into the clouds and begins his heavenly session, where he now rules and will one day return to rescue and judge. Because he humbled himself like this, God the Father raises Jesus. So there is now no name, no celebrity, no saviour is greater. He's kind of super lifted up, the original language calls it. Christ now reigns over all, including you and me. He is the greatest. It's there in verse 11. He is Christ the Lord, the, the ruler, the king. It's there in that title, Lord. It's the name used of God in the Old Testament. This is God himself who rose on that Easter Sunday. It's there in the worshipful bowing of verse 10. The only one who that is appropriate for is God himself. The godness of Jesus continues, as does his humanity. He remains known by the name Jesus, which is used only of him in his incarnation. And it concludes with one day, everyone will see Jesus for who he truly is, Lord of all. See that verse 10? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, Christ will return. And his glory that is still veiled to us now will be seen. Everyone will acknowledge this is true. One day you will bow the knee before Jesus and say, You are Lord. If you confess him as Lord now, then on that day you will willingly bend the knee as he welcomes you into his eternal kingdom. But if you reject Jesus now, well, that day will be a fearful and begrudging bending of the knee as you acknowledge that you rejected him as Lord. What we see here is because of his death on the cross, God has raised Jesus to life again and the whole world is orbiting around him. And one day we will all see it. So start that now. Be humbled before Jesus. Well, I've got two very brief implications that I think come out of this passage. The first thing is, you need to let Jesus humbly serve you. Remember that reading from John 13? Peter refused to let initially to let Jesus wash him. And Jesus said, no, you'll reflect on this later. You need me to wash you. So too, we need to be humble enough to let Jesus cleanse us. I've said a lot about being humble today, but the message of Christianity isn't be a humble enough person and God will let you into heaven. The message of Christianity is Jesus has humbled himself to the cross to save you. And you don't want to be proud 
and standing before God saying, I'm the best at humility. You want to be humble enough to let Jesus wash you of your sin. Jesus served you and you need his help. Don't be too proud to let Jesus serve you. Now, the only way to stand before God is humbly. And when we do, he takes us on that journey of the cross and the crown to one day share in his resurrection, to give us eternal life beyond the grave. Now, you can't be a Christian without the humility of letting the God of the universe serve you. And I think the second implication that comes out of this is quite clear, is those served by Jesus then serve like him. You can't know a God who loves you in this way and not be changed by it. It's kind of those Mandalorian watches out here. It looks like there's a few Star Wars freaks here. It's that phrase, this is the way. This is the way of life for followers of Jesus. Humble, sacrificial service of others. The world says move upwards. God says move downwards. The pattern is the cross, then glory. We are taught just do you, be true to yourself, look after your own interests. No one else will do it for you. Joy is found in self-actualization. Ambition is how you get ahead in the world. You, 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 you. But what Jesus teaches us that we're reflecting on this weekend is it turns our thinking upside down. That it's not about putting yourself forward, but in serving others. And although we think it's turning our world upside down, what Jesus really does is turns our world back right side up. Where the king serves as a slave. So let Jesus humbly serve you. And if you've already done that, then know that those served by Jesus then serve others like him. I'm going to close in prayer. Please join with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you on this day and every day for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead and reigning as Lord of all. And Father, we know one day he will return to judge. So please prepare us for that day by helping us confess Jesus Christ as Lord now. Father, we thank you for the humility of Christ in serving us. Please help us not to be too proud, but let him serve us by washing us clean spiritually for eternity. We thank you for the hope of eternity that is ours in Christ Jesus. And as we wait for that eternity with you, please help us to serve like Jesus, humbly loving others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.